0: You may have a casual relationship now and then that is peaceful and uncomplicated. We enjoy such a relationship with our postal delivery worker who delivers the mail to our house. It's simple and it's smooth. Now the relationship with our newspaper delivery guy is another story, even this morning Not so smooth, but it's just a casual relationship. It doesn't mean a lot. In fact, we've never really met him. But you get very deep into any human relationship and you are going to face complications. There will be disagreement. There will be disappointment. There might even be betrayal. There will be certainly offense. And sometimes even all of it boils down into hostility. Relationships are difficult. Sometimes they're dangerous. Always, if they're very deep at all, they take a lot of hard work. And invariably, those relationships then require reconciliation. Reconciliation, by definition, is a state of relational peace that ends a previously hostile relationship between two estranged persons. With that in mind, I'd like you to think carefully with me. And I'll say some things here that are pretty countercultural. They may even be shocking to a few here that have not come to understand these things. But I want you to think for a moment. From the moment that Adam sinned in the garden, you were God's enemy. Now we could look to God who knows all things and back that up even further into eternity past. But historically, from the moment that Adam sinned, you were an enemy of God. You were sucked into a spiritual condition of alienation from Him. And knowing you would be born a rebel, God reckoned you as His enemy, an object of His holy wrath against sinners. Thankfully, there is more to the story, of course, but biblical Christianity must start here with our natural state of estrangement from God. This is not where other religions like to start. Or to ever go. Nor do they speak then in the same way of the necessity of the joy of reconciliation with the divine. World religions talk about appeasing the gods. Figuring out what they want or what your God wants and doing that thing. And so they talk a lot about impressing God with good deeds. But there is no talk of a deep abiding, personal relationship with God. This very concept is really ultimately only possible through the knowledge of the one true living God and Jesus Christ who brings us to Him. And so other religions have no relationship with the Lord that comes to full terms with this natural hostility. That we have against Him. But since the Christian faith delves deeply into this personal relationship, it must start by coming to terms with the broken state of that relationship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the table before which we gather, around which we gather today, is a symbol of reconciliation with God. That we, His enemies have been brought into a relationship that is now healed. The animosity is gone. The hostility is over because of what God has done. And so this table is a symbol of that reconciliation. We come for that theme back to Romans chapter 5, but let me remind you first of Paul's thought in this book, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. As we pin these ideas to specific texts, we read here that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And Paul labors to describe that that is us, that is all of us in our sin. Chapter 2 And verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Speaking generically there of those without Christ, there is this very pointed statement that we are the objects of God's wrath and that our natural ways store up the judgment of God against us. This is the relationship. This is how broken it is. Paul is laboring to help us understand. In fact, chapter 3 and verse 10. Chapter 3 verse 10 as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is our alienation. Verse 28. The good news is sounded here again as it was in 1.16 and 17. But he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Working out how then we can be reconciled to God. It is not by works that we have done. It is by faith in the justifying work of God. And chapter 4 works that out to some length. But certainly in chapter 3 we see the heart of it in Verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, but it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We came then as we broke out from this condition of sin and lostness into chapter 5, which we read last week. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace on which we stand. And through Jesus Christ also, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God And not only this, but through Jesus Christ, we also rejoice in our sufferings because there's a point to it all in Christ as He builds our faith. And as we are assured of the love of God, verse 5, that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But what assurance do we have of God's reconciling love? What assurance do we have? We have sung of it today. What assurance is in our hearts that this is the case? The assurance of this reconciling love of God is not found in some mystical moment, in some feeling that we get from time to time, although there is an internal witness of the Spirit which is subjective and is very real. It's not a passing feeling that ultimately feeds our understanding that this reconciliation has indeed happened in Christ. But it is meditation upon the truths that God reveals. And that's the beauty of coming to chapter 5 and verse 6. This new standing that we now have in Christ is grounded in the historical facts of the gospel. And we feed on it here now as we prepare for this supper together. We notice, first of all, then, that Jesus' death in the place of ungodly sinners reveals the nature of God's love for His people. That might sound like kind of an academic statement, but take it home, think on this today. Let's work it through in these three verses. Jesus' death in the place of ungodly sinners reveals the nature of God's love for His people. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So our former spiritual condition is described in verse 6 as weak, as ungodly. These words kind of start a stack on which Paul will pile other words to express our utter impotence to please God by our own good deeds. He's established that in chapter 3, but he comes back to it here again. We were weak. We were incapable We were ungodly. And at that time, Christ died for us in our weakness. It's a stunning revelation. We should never get used to it. It should always amaze us. What any logical person would expect God to do with the ungodly is exactly what we say and do. What we cry for whenever a vile criminal comes to trial. We hold our breath waiting anxiously for the gavel of God's guilty verdict to fall in judgment. But what? What? The judgment falls not on the ungodly sinner. The judgment of God falls on the guiltless. It falls on the sinless Christ who dies for the ungodly. I think we are right to fill in with that word for that he dies in the place of the ungodly sinner. He takes our position and he dies our death. We who are ungodly. The righteous dying for the righteous. Verse 7 highlights the extraordinary nature of this unexpected reality. Verse 7, for one... A human being will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's take verse 7 and work that out as he reasons from it. Christ died for the ungodly. Now as we compare that with the nature of human love, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. A righteous person here is not in a technical sense, in a theological sense. He's just talking here about the way we talk when we say an innocent bystander. An innocent bystander might be on the street and get shot to death by a crossfire in some uh, Drug deal gone bad and some war between gangs and you say well, there's an innocent bystander die Well, that innocent bystander might have been, you know, kind of a jerk honestly, but in that situation Though a sinner we say they're innocent because they don't deserve that in that situation that didn't have that coming And so we speak of them that way I think that's how paul is speaking of it here for one will scarcely die for a righteous person for one who's just for one Who's innocent in the situation? That's going to not happen very often. Friday morning, March 23rd, an Islamic terrorist killed two shoppers in a grocery store in France. He then took a cashier hostage. She's 40 years old, has a two-year-old daughter. Her name is Julie. Arnaud Beltrame, an officer of France National Police entered the store and negotiated an exchange with Julie. He took her place, she went free, and the hostage held him in the grocery store. After a four-hour standoff, the terrorist slit Beltrame's throat and he died. That's dying for a righteous person. That's what Paul's aiming at here. Julie was righteous in the sense that she was an innocent victim. She didn't have this coming. This was wrong. Beltrame was that rare person who would risk death for such a person. He had been trained to this, he had been prepared for this, and he did not hesitate. But he died in the place of an innocent bystander. That will happen once in a while and it will hit the news verse 7 says though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die perhaps that very low percentage might inch upward a bit in the case of a person who is loved for his or her goodness somebody that we really adore and maybe once in a while someone would step in and die in that place but here's the wonder of it the nature of God's love is something entirely other than this Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That but there at verse 8, that, there's a sharp contrast here. We pause with deep reverence to acknowledge the heroism and the sacrifice of Officer Beltrain. We wonder at the levels of gratitude that Julie must have felt that day when she went home and embraced her two-year-old daughter and her family. But God's love is a far, of a far higher nature than that. He dies for us while we were sinners, before we were born. He died while you were a sinner. That is, before we were born, we were God's enemies. When He died, you were in the equation, I was in the equation. We were at that time His enemies. Before we were born, Christ died for us. He was under no compulsion. He was unmoved by any merit in us. What moved God was love for sinners. Jesus died in the analogy. Hear this. He died in the analogy, not for Julie. He died in the analogy for the terrorist. And you and I were that terrorist. That was us. That's the nature of His love. One commentator notes that we really have here in verse 8 the gospel in just four words. Christ died for us. Christ died, the historical fact, for us, the theological interpretation, in our place, paying the penalty of our sin. That's the nature of God's love. And note, it is by Christ's death for us that God shows His love. Do you see that in verse 8? God shows His love. The word shows could be demonstrates His love. He puts it on display in this way that He gives His Son to die for us. He demonstrates His love this way. I think there is here then a very significant warning for us. I'd like to share this with us and just to... Think about it. We need to be warned here. Do not demand that God reveal the infinite depth of his love to you in inferior ways. This is a temptation that we have. We demand of God, prove your love to me in inferior ways than what he's already proven. I think we're warned here. We tend to doubt God's love because we lose a job. We doubt His love because of the troubles in our marriage or because we're not married. We doubt His love because we become sick or we fail to achieve a goal that is dear to our hearts or a relationship ends. And we say, God, how could you love me? You see what we're doing? We're saying, if you would do this small thing, you would prove your love to me. But He has done the greatest thing To prove his love for us. He shows his love. He puts it on display. He demonstrates it. To say I have died in your place. I have loved you with an infinite love. So what we need to do. Is not look to the smaller proofs. That we expect God to provide for us. Concerning his love. But rather we need to look to the cross. Jesus died there for me. And that, I think, then secondly, beyond the warning, is a strategy that we want to take with us in our Christian walk. When I'm discouraged, when we are suffering, we need to learn to meditate on the love of God displayed in Christ's death for us. Our brain doesn't want to go there. Our sinful passions want to take us other ways. They want to take us in the direction of, I want what I want. I want things to go well but we're being counseled here turn to the cross when we are discouraged we need to know god loves me and christ's death is the evidence we turn our attention then not to the person who has wronged us we do not fixate on the heartache that we've suffered we don't focus on the pain or the problem, if you ever doubt God's love, look to the cross. Look to the crucified Christ. No greater love has ever been displayed. And that love for you in Christ is eternal. Look there. Years ago, I attended a woman in the hospital who was dying of cancer and on the day that she died, she had a, what I was gathering, a fairly colorful relationship with her husband. But um, he said to her on her deathbed, I love you. And I, I'll never forget, she kind of snapped her head, looked up and, said, and, he, and she said to him, prove it. I, d- I don't know what that was all about. <laughs> but, but it's a reminder to us, isn't it? True love proves itself. Take this home and take this with you right into eternity. Jesus proved it. There is nothing more to prove. He shows his love for sinners there as he dies in our place. No one ever has, no one ever will, no one ever could love you the way that he loved you when he suffered God's wrath in your place. The righteous dying for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He suffered not only torture. He suffered not only an early death. He suffered the wrath of God's judgment against our sin. That is love. There's no greater display. And as you have come to a position of trust and faith in Jesus Christ, that is His love for you. Learn to meditate on that. When life pulls you down, when the trials of life take you away, when our faith wavers come back to the cross, that's God's love. Secondly, then in verse 9, the entailment here. Jesus' death in the place of ungodly sinners secures salvation from God's wrath for His people. In a sense, the first three verses then looking to the past, to what Christ has done, how he has demonstrated his love while we were his enemies, while we were alienated from him as sinners and weak and ungodly, Christ died for us. But now verses 9-11 through 11 have more of a bent toward what is yet to come. And the assurance that we have in this love. Jesus' death in the place of ungodly sinners secures salvation from God's wrath for his people. I'd like to just work through verse 9, phrase by phrase. But since therefore, we have now been justified. That should make sense. So a once and forever, acquittal of all guilt for our sin, which remains our present standing. This is the grace we stand in that we looked at last week. This is the position that we have. We have been justified. Not something we've earned. Passive tense. We have been justified. It's a work that God has done to acquit us, to call us righteous in his standing. How has this divine declaration been secured? Verse 9, it is by his blood. We have been justified by God and by his blood, that is, by the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ on the cross. Now, if this is true, if we are justified sinners, then another glorious truth follows. Verse 9. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If justified, then we will be saved. It's an argument that flows from the greater to the lesser. If we as sinners are justified by Christ's death, he will obviously deliver us in the end from God's wrath. He will bring us all the way through. Justification points to the past when God declared us righteous. Salvation from God's wrath points us to the future. That wrath will fall ultimately in eternity. And so that's the salvation of which he speaks. And may we not handle these truths lightly. If you enter into eternity without this justification in Christ through his death, you will stand before the wrath of God. You will stand before a furnace of fire and judgment that is beyond all imagination. I'd love to believe I speak to no one, but I may speak to you that day is coming, remember this day. And may this be the day of turning when you become ready to meet God, not in His wrath, but as one justified. But for those who know Christ as Savior, may we take this to heart as well again. I was talking to a pastor friend last year. We knew of a church in the East Coast where we both grew up and it was, in a, it was in a vacation town and both of our families had gone there. We didn't know each other at the time. We just met here later in life, uh, recent decade. But we talked about this church because it had a sign that was lighted that said, Jesus saves. And this young man without Christ growing up, he said, I'd always go by that sign and I'd always say, Jesus saves what? What does he save? A beautiful story that he came to understand what that sign meant. Jesus saves sinners. He rescues sinners. But notice what verse 9 says. Much more shall we be saved by him from what? From our sin, yes. But notice it's from the wrath of God. So that sign on that church could say Jesus saves sinners. That it had more lights, but it could also say, with more lights still, Jesus saves sinners from God's wrath. I wonder how often we think of that. As believers in Christ, we say, I was saved at a certain time in my life, during this season somewhere, or on this day, I was saved. Saved from what? We were saved from God. We were saved from the God who had every right to judge us. We were saved from His wrath. Verse 10 simply expands upon verse 9 as it reiterates, For it was while we were enemies that we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Jesus dying in our place while we were the enemies of God. Reckoned as enemies from the time the world was created. Reckoned from as enemies at least from the time historically that Adam fell into sin. We were the enemies of God. All people fallen in that muck of sin come out as those who rebel against God by nature. That was us. He died for us. He died for us in that condition while we were enemies. And he reconciled us. Then to God. We were reconciled through the work of Christ to the Father, the Son reconciling us, the Son bringing peace where there was enmity. Enemies is that pile now as He continues to pile up on top of weak and ungodly and sinners, now enemies. Just highlight these words through the text. This is not self esteem building 101, is it? coming to full terms with our fallenness and our vileness in our own standing, weak, ungodly sinners, enemies of God. The poet Henry David Thoreau had said on his deathbed that his sister asked if he had made peace with God, and Thoreau said, I did not know we had argued. truth of the matter is that every day of Thoreau's life he had argued with the lordship of Jesus Christ by the way that he lived in self-sufficiency apart from Christ It's a snarky comment cynical comment makes certain it's not yours I didn't know we had argued we are by nature the enemies of God And we must all recognize then that I was born an enemy of God and in desperate need then of reconciliation. Reconciliation, there are two moments. There is Christ's death which secures the way of reconciliation with God and our repentant trust in the gospel in time where reconciliation is effected. We are born as enemies of God. We were the enemies of God when Adam fell, but we come through the reconciling work of Christ to a place of reconciliation when we put our trust and our confidence that Jesus died for me and rose again. We come to truly trust that and put our confidence in that. A state of relational peace replaces the estrangement, the hostility into which we were born, and it is replaced now with fellowship. Verse 10 continues with the much more argument. Much more than If he died while we were enemies to reconcile us to God, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. What is the point there? Packer puts it this way. If the Father gave the Son on Calvary's cross to save us from sin, we need not doubt that he will now be faithful in bringing us through to glory. If he saved us as his enemies, he will certainly bring us all the way home as reconciled sinners, as his children, as the redeemed. We will be saved by his life. I think that means saved from God's just wrath against sin by the new life Christ won for us through the resurrection. Saying in a sense what he said in 4.25. He was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is by his life, by his resurrection power that we have this life. More than that, verse 11 continues, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now when he says more than that, what does he mean here? I think not in the sense of more important, but in the sense of more immediate. Right Right now, in this life, We will be delivered from the wrath of God that will fall ultimately in eternity. We will be delivered from that because we've been reconciled with Him. But we enjoy that relationship now, here. In this life, through the work of Christ, in our behalf, you see the phrase there in verse 11, we rejoice in God. This is life's ultimate joy. To know God, to be reconciled to God, to rejoice in God. The word could be translated, not rejoice, but exalt, To celebrate, to magnify the greatness and the goodness of God. By nature, we exalt in what we find most beautiful and what we find most valuable. This is an awesome wonder. By all rights... We should be those who hate God. By all rights, we should at least be utterly terrified by Him. Or at least ignore Him for the love of foolish idols. That's normal. What is not normal is that here, on this Lord's Day, we have gathered together as the people of God to sing the song of reconciliation. This small group gathered in this room have gathered here to sing the song of redemption. We admit. As we come, and we celebrate all the more when we come, knowing that we were by nature the enemies of God. Knowing that this whole pile of description is me, weak spiritually, ungodly, sinner, enemy. But God moved toward us. Sending His Son to die in our place and to pay the penalty of our sin. And now we can sing. Here we say as we lift our songs, once ruined sinners now reconciled to God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Having received reconciliation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we do not hate God. We exalt in Him. What a Savior. This is new life. This is life from the dead. And as reconciled sinners, we come in the joy of the Spirit to commune together then with Christ, to commune together with one another around this table, which is, in some sense, the table of reconciliation reconciliation, rejoicing in this reality. Draw us in for the glory of your name we pray.